1: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the Secret Files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Andre Soldatov and Irina Baragan. Close enough, I think. That's I'm very happy that I got those right. And they're co-founders of Agentura.ru and co-authors of two books widely available here in the United States, The New Nobility the restoration of Russia's security state and the enduring legacy of the KGB, and the Red Web, the Kremlin's Wars on the Internet, which was originally released in 2015, but has now been re-released with new information in the US elections of 2016. Their work has been featured in the New York Times, Moscow Times, Washington Post, Online Journalism Review, Le Monde, Christian Science Monitor, CNN, and lots of other places. And the New York Times has called their website, agentura.ru, a website that came in from the cold to unveil Russian secrets. So welcome, and thank you for joining us here on SpyCast.
2: Thank you very much for having us here. Thank you. Yeah.
1: So I, I want to ask a question that I think is going to be on a lot of people's minds. Um, what drove the two of you to begin investigating Russian intelligence and security services? Because this seems, sadly, now more than ever, like a job with a very short life expectancy. <laughs> um, I mean, in just, just in the last couple days, there was a, a Russian talk radio journalist um, uh, Tatiana, uh, f- uh, was yeah. yes. who was stabbed in the throat you know just a couple of days ago, and I think people out there will understand uh, where journalists that speak up against the Kremlin uh, find an un- 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 untimely demise. So what uh, what drove you to do what well, arguably be one of those dangerous mm-hmm. jobs around?
2: You are right about Tatiana Felgengauer, Uh, she's better now, Uh, she's a friend of us, so we are very worried about this, but it was not always like this, because when we uh, we became journalists, it was uh, back into 1996, and it was absolutely free Russia, and we uh, we, uh, we had that time, absolutely free press, there was no pressure on the journalists at all, and journalists, was very popular and it was I don't know a very very well paid job and uh, we were was twenty years old and all journalists most of journalists in Russia was I don't know uh, in Sorry. the age of twenty twenty five years old so that was great times and um, uh, we so we started started working as a journalist and we were happy with this but uh, in two thousand in two thousand when Putin came, when Vladimir Putin came to power. Uh, we were very furious because uh, we knew that he was from the, from the KGB and uh, uh, we didn't like that. And uh, what we decided to do? Uh, uh, we had no idea that Putin will be forever or for 17 years. We were sure that it is, I don't know, uh, some, maybe for some period like four years. Mm-hmm. And we just, but we understood uh, that uh, as a person from the KGB, he have to uh, he have to infiltrate into the uh, into the Russian government. A lot of people from the KGB, uh, a lot of former KGB offices. So we decided to set up a website uh, and called it uh, because uh, we wanted to uh, gather information on these people and to publish. It, make it publish because public, yeah. we make it public because we thought that uh, we uh, operate in this way we could have a lot of uh, we could gain a lot of popularity. What was our idea? That wasn't something about uh, about to be brave journalists or people who are always are always in danger. We just wanted to be popular. Right.
3: <laughs> it was a very hot topic, and uh, uh, of course, it was really difficult if you are. Very young to enter this field, especially if you are not former security agents and we, we are journalists. Uh, we have no security background but we, uh, so we wanted to find some inspiration, some example to follow, and uh, our inspiration for years was uh, the website uh, the American website actually. Uh, Federal um, a, uh, Academy of Sciences uh, secrecy mm-hmm. project, yeah. run by Steve Aftergood, yeah. who's amazing, and we thought, well, probably we can do something similar in Russia to set up a watchdog, essentially on the Russian security services. That was our well initial idea. Of course, we understood very quickly that it couldn't be well, but. Well, Russia is not the United States, uh, and uh, you cannot uh, say send all these four requests uh, to to the Russian government, asking them to request them, basically to uh, declassify some documents. Mm-hmm. We understood that it should be more uh, journalistic; uh, that we need to uh, to do more uh, investigative journalism, and that was our approach. It has been our approach ever since. Uh, we, of course, with, with the time, some of our uh well so we we shifted a little bit, uh, and uh we began with uh the focus on uh, counter-terrorism and counter intelligence and uh, rivalries uh between the agencies this kind of thing uh and uh, by two thousand and nine probably two thousand yeah two thousand and nine we understood that the internet uh would be the next battlefield so we uh began uh we well, uh, deep well digging ball well, into this field trying to understand what's going on with uh, the Russian surveillance techniques, uh, with uh, filtering, with with, uh, Putin's idea how to control the internet. And then we got the Moscow protests Mm -hmm. and uh, before that the Arab Spring. And it was absolutely clear that the Kremlin uh, got scared of the internet and uh, it launched a massive offensive on internet freedoms. Uh, So it was a kind of uh, background, and we decided that we need to do something about it, and to write a book. And uh, yeah, finally, in twenty fifteen, we published uh, the Red Web.
1: Yeah, and I, I want to ask you—you you both spent some time uh, being talked to by the FSB. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if you use the word interrogated, but I'm not going to put words in your mouth.
3: Um, it was uh, yes, it was correct. Mm-hmm. Interrogated.
1: I mean, are they are they trying to very subtly warn you to start looking in different directions or looking at different things or I mean, how, how seriously do you take their pushback against your work? How seriously do you take their warnings?
3: The problem was that uh, they started this investigation, uh, I mean, the, the first, because there, was, there were several of investigations uh, of the FSB against us. And the very first one was uh, very educational. Uh, because that was the moment we understood how they work to some extent, and um, we uh, back then it was 2002, and there was a time when we got a major crisis in Moscow. Uh, the theater was taken mm-hmm. hostage by uh, by Chechen separatists, and the problem was not only this situation, but also the way how the security services handled this crisis uh about well, security services finally they stormed the building and lots of people died because uh, a gas uh, a poisoning gas was was used. So we were really critical, we we published some stories and uh, we were determined to proceed to keep going. So when we uh were summoned uh to Leforto prison because that's the place where you are interrogated by the FSB actually right. in prison. So uh I was told very straightforwardly that I need to stop uh, this investigation because it's uh, kind of in in uh, national interest. And um, a very strange theory was presented to me. Uh, The idea was that we questioned back then the number of uh, victims. And the theory, which was really popular among the FSB, at least uh, they told us that it was very popular that according to some strange estimates uh, for uh, Islamist suicide bombers, it considered to be a success if one suicide bomber uh, took with him at least six people. If it's more, it's better. Mm-hmm. If it's a victory. If it's less than six, it's a disaster. And uh, the idea of the FSB was to tell us, look, could you please reduce the number of victims because this could prevent the next attack right. from happening. And of course, it was just nothing. I mean, there, there was no sense in it. And in two years, we got this uh, uh, tragedy in Beslan when right. the, the school was uh, taken hostage. Lots of people died. But that was the way how the security services explained it to themselves why we need to put pressure on journalists.
1: I want to I mean, a lot of people out there who are listening understand what the FSB is now more than ever. Uh, even those who had no idea what those initials meant know more now after November of last year. Um, but maybe people don't understand the idea that uh, this is an organization that was intended to be or at least envisioned to be somewhat like the FBI here in the United States, where the SVR was supposed to be the foreign intelligence CIA Security service. Essentially, the SVR is a non-player at this point to many extent. And the FSB, because of who led it at one point, perhaps, and because of counterterrorism and kind of the purview of the former Soviet states being part of FSB's purview, now they're all NATO nations, can you talk a little bit about how the FSB has gone from Uh. the FBI to the most dominant organization uh, frankly in
2: speaking the FSB have never been like FBI because even uh, even in the early 90s when he uh, when the FSB st- uh, just just uh, just was born uh, it was an organization which combined uh, m- much more, much more functions than the FBI. It was not only, uh, it wasn't only law enforcement agency. It was a law enforcement agency and also counterintelligence agency and also uh, some kind of big, powerful structure which is uh, uh, some some kind of control over over the people's mind right. uh, because. Uh, th- a- a- since uh, since, uh, since uh, 19, uh, Andre, uh, uh, to since 1990 to be precise, uh, the, uh, the, the FSB five. the FSB uh, got its investigative department in 1995. That means what, what kind of, if if you are a law enforcement agency, what kind of investigation are going to are going to carry out?
3: And also, it was mm-hmm. something about the name. Because uh, the initial idea of Yeltsin was to when he actually split the KGB mm-hmm. into different into different parts, his idea uh, was firstly to make a counterintelligence uh, agency. That's why the first name for the FSB was FSK, mm-hmm. with the K meaning counterintelligence. But in 1995, thanks to uh, the Chechen war, uh, Yeltsin became sort of nervous and scared of uh, what's going on, and he wanted to. Uh, give more powers to the FSB. That's why he changed the name, and FSB, uh, he changed FSK into the FSB, B meaning security, безопасness uh, security. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, of course it's a much broader term, it actually could include anything. Right. I mean, uh, it could be national security, informational security, any kind of things. Uh, and so we actually believe that already in 1995, uh, we got some sort of resurrection of the KGB. We got back the investigative department, the prison system, the political surveillance unit, lots of things. And uh, in 1998, we got some powers over the internet, uh, which was very small but significant. Uh, so yes, it's, it was very uh, different from uh, say ABI from the beginning. And also there was an interesting thing about, um, about intelligence. Uh, we had this system in the KGB back in 70s and 60s that uh, okay, you you have this uh, so-called first chief directorate in in charge Mm -hmm. of uh, sending people abroad and trying to recruit foreigners but what happens if, say, you have some foreigners coming to the Soviet Union of course, back then it was not a very often thing, I mean (laughs) not a lot of uh, foreigners uh, uh, were going to the Soviet Union, but still you need to have some people on the ground and for that, they build a local, widespread network of uh, so-called first sections, uh, in every local branch of the KGB. So when uh, the KGB was split, and you have the first chief directorate turned into SVR, you still have this local network, right. and you need to find a way how to do with them, and what, and actually to find tasks for them. So uh, when Putin was the director of the FSB, uh, there was an idea uh, that they need some sort of coordination body. So they built something in uh, in the headquarters of the FSB right in Moscow to sort of coordinate all these uh, uh, first sections inherited from the KGB. But once you get something in the very headquarters, then you can de- develop it. Right. And immediately, actually in three, two years, uh, they... they they became very ambitious, uh, and uh, I think already by 2006, we spotted that they adopted as their symbol a globe, uh, which is uh, a sign of ambitions, actually, that these guys, they, they wanted to spy everywhere. And now right. the FSB is our uh, third intelligence agency.
1: So It used to be a joke in the United States that NSA stood for no such agency because it was <laughs> so secret and no one knew anything about it. Now it's a lot more open. And, and it almost seems like FSB is, is adopting some of those old ideas. No one knows what the budget is, no one knows how many people are actually working for the FSB. I mean, that's not widely known. I mean, no. yes, a lot of American intelligence agencies, the number of people working for CIA is still classified, but people have an idea, but there's no, it could be as many as 200,000, 300,000 people working for the FSB.
2: Uh, as we wrote in our first book, The New Unability, uh, at uh, uh, like 200,000 people who be, who, who, yeah. got, who worked for the FSB at that time. But uh, this is really uh, only the idea of how many right. people could work for them because uh, this, uh, this number has never been disclosed.
1: And it doesn't include people who are informal informants, you know, people who are talking to FSB. I, let me ask you another. The power of FSB, from what I know, uh, has come through the exploitation of Terrorist incidents, or what some have argued are in the United States, we call them false flags, like the Moscow uh, apartment bombings uh, right before Putin's election in 2000, like Beslan. Um, you know where, uh, like the apartment bombings themselves, led to the second Chechen war and the, the power of the security services. And then, you know, do you see that now? Because you see them spreading out into Syria and other places around the world with counterterrorism operations. Has that been used, whether purposely or not? I'm not saying, say they did all the bad stuff, but are they taking advantage of counterterrorism being such a big deal around the world to increase their power every day?
3: That's uh, that's actually a very interesting question because uh, uh, it looks like Putin uh, by probably 2015 became a bit uh, disillusioned with the FSB. Uh, uh, because uh, we got with a big uh, political crisis in 2011-2012 with the Moscow protests and uh, with some uncertainty and Putin was scared, actually. He was scared by social media, by Facebook. He believed that it was a kind of big conspiracy uh, run by this, the U.S. State Department. And the problem was that the FSB, which was given so much powers, they were not that powerful. Mm. I mean, they, they, they failed to warn him about what was coming to him. And uh, there was a once, at least one statement, public statement, by the deputy director of the FSB, who said, look, we have no means to live with Facebook. We don't know what to do. So he wanted to do something about these guys. And uh, in, and, and actually, he decided to abandon this idea of the new nobility, that the FSB should be seen as the new, actually, aristocracy uh, of russia providing all kinds of answers to all kinds of questions so but it doesn't mean that actually they they suffered in terms of their powers what he did he stripped them of some unusual powers for example they are not anymore uh in charge of uh, defining the russian national ideology but at the same time, uh, time uh, Putin, uh, well, actually prompted them to be much more aggressive in terms of uh, repressions inside mm-hmm. of the country. Uh, and uh, over the last two, three years, we got some crazy, crazy events. Like we got governors uh, sent to jail, we got uh, ministers uh, uh, in jail, we got deputy ministers in jail, some federal, uh, federal uh, officials at the level of the Kremlin. And we have, we have some directors of theater directors sent to jail.
1: We might have some high-level officials sent to jail soon, too. So we're <laughs> in, a, in some anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah,
3: but, <it's, laughs> but sort of reflects that actually – That's
2: unusual for the Russian, for, for the yeah. Russian Putin system, because right. uh, people uh, – people, uh, high-positioned people always uh, – always lo- when they lost their positions, they just – uh, they, they just was retired but they were not put no, in jail no it's
3: something different mm-hmm. it means that Putin actually he tries to make the Russian system much more repressive to to use repressions as a tool to control them and of course the FSB became very instrumental it doesn't mean that they became more independent I would say on the contrary now they are, are more tightly controlled by the administration of the Kremlin but they are very aggressive and uh, it's sort of uh, it has its effect
1: and it seems that, I mean, you bring up the KGB as kind of the, the natural ancestor of the FSB, but I, I think of more of the Chaka as being more apt to some of the tactics. Oh, tackles. no, oh, they're no. not so
2: terrifying. I yeah. <laughs> no. hope so, because yeah.
1: they,
0: they
1: do not
3: shoot people on the streets. Uh, yeah. well,
1: but they have adopted, if you've seen the, the, we have in the museum the 20th anniversary pin of, of the FSB from 2014, and it adopts the ideology, exact imagery of the old Chaka Anniversary pins from 1922 and 1927 and 1932. I
3: mean, it's You're absolutely I, right. But these guys are really are very inventive. Uh, say in the 1990s, when I very first time I went to the FSB museum in Moscow on Lebanka, and it's now it's a kind of uh, you cannot get to this place, but back then it was it was possible. So I was really surprised to find that Dzerzhinsky... As a founder of Chika was presented in this museum as a guy who actually he tried to reform and modernize Russian economy. Just like what? That was his uh, main role in in the <laughs> Russian society. But that was the way they wanted to portray themselves as people who were really interested in, the, well, modernizing Russian economy.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of Stalinist revisionism going on also of yeah. uh, some of the older generation, was, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. I, you, you brought up the idea of, of the 2010, 2011, 2012 being um, a scary time for Putin. This is really when the Internet becomes a key component to all this, and this is your second book, uh, The Red Web. Um, it, it's hard for Americans maybe to believe this now because of how effectively the Russians were able to use the Internet in the last year or so, and which we'll talk about in a second, but I want to back up to kind of look at how paranoid, and you already kind of alluded to this, talking about Facebook and other things like that, how paranoid the Kremlin leaders were about the power of the Internet, about how it could potentially be a a subversive tactic by the United States because of Facebook and Twitter and all those other things, and then mixed in with the same idea of the Arab Spring happening and a lot of things that were Internet-powered and social media powered. You alluded to it, but can you get a little bit more into how the Kremlin saw this movement taking place and Mm. why it frightened them so much?
2: The security services, the Russian security services have been paranoid about the internet from the beginning, but Putin was not. Mm. He really didn't believe in the internet, and it was a great thing for Russia because the internet have been developed until uh, 2011, until 2012, absolutely freely. Nobody touched the internet, and we have no regulation on the internet until 2012 at all. Uh, You could post anything on the internet, and and you couldn't be punished in any case. Uh, But after this protest, Putin was really into, I mean, uh, when people... Uh, went to street in to, uh, in Moscow and in Saint Petersburg in uh, in 2011 and in 2012. Putin was uh, shocked, and he uh, he was really surprised to see that that people organized uh, on the social networks on the internet. They was not, uh, they weren't uh, organized by some party or some leader. They just organized by themselves yeah. using social networks. It was really surprising for the Putin, and he started. He's uh, offensive on the internet.
3: Probably, but I would add one thing, which we, sometimes it's really confusing to see why we became so scared given the numbers of uh, people protesting. I mean, actually, on the height of protest we got probably 100,000 people on Moscow streets, which is, uh, to be honest, not a very big number. Right. I mean, given the fact that we have uh, how many, almost uh, 14 million people uh, living in Moscow, it's, it's not that right. big. But nevertheless, we were, they became really scared. And the reason is uh, why is because the Kremlin believed that they've been in some sort of arms race with the State Department of the United States since at least uh, 1999. That was the moment when uh, we got with uh, our color revolutions uh, mm-hmm. thing uh, in Belgrade. And uh, the problem for the Kremlin, they believed that color revolutions present a kind of new tool for uh, mobilizing people without, uh, say, traditional ways of mobilizing people, like uh, trade unions or opposition political right. parties, put under control in, in Russia, well, many, many, many years back. And they went with some idea how to counter these, and the Kremlin launched their own pro-Kremlin youth movements, all of that to deal with this new technology invented by US State Department. And then you got social media and you got the Arab Spring. And for the Kremlin, that was a sign that the U.S. Department, U.S. State Department came up with something new. Something which actually is even more dangerous because in this case, you don't need any kind of organization, offline organization. You can organize everything out of scratch uh, almost spontaneously.
1: And imagine what happened to Yanukovych had to be... (laughs) <laughs> really really scary yes, it was mm-hmm. Really mm-hmm. For,
3: yeah yeah that's that was another example and uh, it was very emotional Thank for for Putin because uh, especially with his fallen statues of Lenin etc. Because it's of course it's uh, in a way it reminded Putin of uh, 1991 mm-hmm. and this uh, failed uh, putsch uh, organized by the KGB and uh, well we know what happened next. Uh, well the statue of uh, of Dzerzhinsky uh, was just destroyed and uh, we got the new Russia much more liberal. So. And so when you are in this kind of arms race and you're always trying to identify new signs of new weaponry invented by uh, this ominous force of uh, the United States uh, State Department against you. And uh, that's why when we got this this first protest, we we got scared. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of overreaction. Right. Not to the protest, but to what might be behind this protest. Right.
1: And this is where SORM comes in, which is the American transliteration or the English transliteration of a Russian acronym that stands for System of Operative Search Measures.
3: Yeah. Absolutely.
2: This, yeah. this
1: predates the internet a little bit. I mean, this yeah. is, goes back to intercepting telephone traffic. Right. The, it was invented the back was in the 80s, late 80s
3: by the KGB. Actually, they're trying to imitate Stasi success. And uh, we spoke to many guys, well, generals of the KGB and all of them told us how envious they were uh, while well, reading all these uh, transcripts uh, provided by Stasi because we understood that Stasi was way well, actually, uh, forward, and they were much more advanced uh, in technology uh, than the KGB. So we wanted to do something like, like STASI. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately for, 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 actually for, for Russian citizens, uh, all the plans were postponed because of 1991 and the collapse of the Soviet Union. So they actually they introduced this system only in 1995, and uh, the very first implementation for the Internet we got by 1999. But of course, this technology has been developing ever since, uh, so every year we are getting some, some new updates.
0: We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
1: And essentially, this is tapping into any kind of Phones, but also internet emails, without any kind of court orders or any kind of warrants that are above board, right? Yeah. So they're not. It's it's. People talk in the United States. We have the FISA courts, which are secret courts that have judges that determine whether or not a, a secret warrant can be issued. They seem as transparent as transparent can be compared to mm. what is going on right now in Russia. Yeah, and because that yeah. so
2: means unrestricted access yeah. to to users' information. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, officer, officer can type really any ID, any ID, identifier ID, ID on the on the on the internet and and get access to all your social networks, all your photographs, videos, and uh, your converse, phone conversations, IP phone conversation, and so on. It's
3: actually it's a kind of uh, it's uh, this system helps you to well actually let you mirror all the traffic, and uh, there is a kind of requirement uh, for uh, getting a warrant, but it's a kind of joke, because the idea is that uh, an, an FSB officer should get a warrant, but he has no right to show this warrant anyone except his superior. And uh, telecommunication company personnel, they have no right to see or to ask for this warrant. And
2: given the fact that nobody can control the FSB, we don't know uh, whether they have to get uh, whether they have to get warrant and every time when they need to intercept anybody.
1: So they're supposed to get a warrant, but there's no way to tell if they're getting a warrant or not because you can't exactly. ask them if they have a yeah, warrant. That's, that's yeah, true. I mean, FISA gets criticized because the approval rate is essentially a hundred percent, but that's because federal prosecutors and people know exactly what's necessary to get a FISA warrant, and they don't bring it to FISA unless they have exactly what it is. And this sounds like there's just whatever you want to do, you can go ahead and do it. I I read that there was, um, last year, there was even a a way to strengthen this law. Uh, It was based on uh, an author, uh, a a parliamentarian, Irina uh, Yaroyava. I'm trying to read my notes, and they're not very legible. Uh, Which essentially kicks in next year, but it takes whatever little restrictions were left completely off the table where they can I, I love this phrase they're they're allowed to take communications metadata as well as quote all other information necessary <laughs> yes. yeah. right. to authorities without a court order I mean that that is as vague, basically taking it whatever they want yeah. and That's it's a-
2: it's uh, it's provoked a lot of panic on the telecommunication market because telecommunication companies and ISPs they' are just not ready to to store all information of Russian users for one year no. they're not ready to do this, and i don't know uh, it, uh, it should be uh, the law should work in, should be working like this that uh if security services need some information on some particular people, uh, they, they can get it, but it couldn't be for all, for, uh, it couldn't be like ma- mass surveillance because it's as far as, as we know from these telecommunications companies and ISPs, it's impossible to implement because of uh, restricted abilities, uh, restricted technical abilities right. of these companies. But it, it's this is for now, but in five years, it right. might be
3: another picture.
1: Well, is that, is this, it's one year for that with metadata, I think. is three years, if I remember yeah, reading it, right? A, so they have to, I mean, that information.
3: And, so, and also, it's interesting, uh, uh, there's this crucial difference between, say, Russian system and American system, that the Russian government tries to place all costs of surveillance on companies.
1: Yeah, so no, I said that too, to, that It's it's yeah. forced to, to pay for it. Yeah.
3: Yes, yes, yeah. 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 so you actually, it's it's very cheap. Like, And, uh, well, NSA uh, should have built this enormous facility in Utah to... Uh, store all this data, and it's, I mean, it was really expensive. Uh, In Russia, uh, it's up to telecommunication companies to pay for all these things. I think the NSA have to follow this idea, (laughs)
2: not to pay for surveillance. (laughs) Yes,
1: make make AT&T and Google and everybody else do it. You talked about how Putin came late to the party of understanding kind of how the internet made a difference, but he seems to have embraced it and gotten on board pretty quickly. he, he's used it pretty effectively to to, to surveil his political opponents, dissidents, uh, foreigners for potential compromise, uh, but even even the people, uh, the Sochi Olympics uh, was, uh, there were a lot of warnings put out before that of, don't bring any electronics that has any information on it, wipe everything clean, even if you're, if you're an athlete, if you're a, an official going along, because that was arguably the most surveilled Olympics in the history of, of the Games. I mean, that. He seems to have figured it out pretty quickly.
3: Yeah, because uh, Sochi Olympics was meant to be kind of testing ground for uh, for surveillance, and uh, it was not the very first time in Russian history. Actually, when we uh, had uh, the Olympic Games back in the 1980 in Moscow, which was ignored by the United States and many other Western countries because of uh, uh, because of the invasion of Afghanistan. But nevertheless, it was used by the KGB as a testing grounds, and they they introduced. Many things uh, during these Olympics. I mean, in Moscow, uh, trying to test them and how they could work. And uh, we actually we got exactly the same thing after the Sochi Olympics. Mm -hmm. Uh, We we tried many things: uh, how to control, uh, for example, Wi-Fi communications; how to control; uh, how to install more CCTV cameras; uh, how to work with uh, biometrics. And now we're trying to expand this system and to use it everywhere.
1: Let me ask you. It seems that one of the fears of Putin is the internationalism of the internet where it's not something that can be controlled as a national asset and, and with the kind of nationalism that's happening inside Russia and now the United States you know it, it's messy it's not something that's that easily controlled is that a root cause of some of the fears of the leadership that you know that someone from the United States or China or somewhere else can kind of reach into Russia and put ideas in and
3: to be honest, it's a very, I would say it's a very traditional uh, way of thinking for the Russian security services. I was very young and was was probably first month as a journalist, and I was sent to the Russian parliament, the state duma, uh, for, uh, for the hearings of the Internet. It was the very first hearing in 1996. And I remember there was a general uh, of the Russian security services who just said that the Internet posed a threat uh, to the national security of Russian Federation just because it's built on American technologies, it's mm. an American invention, and uh, we use American services. So this idea is still very popular. And of course, Putin sh- believes, and his people believe, that it's, uh, it's very important to install some borders to make the Russian Internet Russian, uh, right. to, to actually to, to localize it. And uh, it's, it means, unfortunately, a lot of things uh, starting from putting pressure on telecommunication companies to trying to uh, force global platforms like Google or Facebook or Twitter to move their servers into Russia and to store all data uh, in Russia. And of course it's uh, it, it, it would mean that finally we will get completely different versions of the internet. I mean here or Brazil or, or, or Russia or Germany. It would be they would lost this idea of of a
1: global network. Well, you're seeing that in China a little bit, where the Chinese government is forcing these telecommunications companies to block certain websites that are critical of the Chinese government. I mean, they they have the the business power to force these companies to do it because they have the economic strength. Is Russia getting to that point where they can they can do that? I mean, you have people like Kaspersky and others that are have a huge part of of global internet business, uh, but is the Russian economy strong enough to kind of force that issue?
0: Mm,
2: uh, Russian economy not so mm. strong as Chinese, mm. and mm. it's also a big factor for the uh, international internet companies. Uh, I don't. I, I think that uh, uh, the fact that uh, the interna- international comp- internet companies uh, refuse to uh, to move their service into Russia, which is a big deal for us, because. Uh, until uh, the uh, their servers are uh, here on the west, the FSB and other uh, security services can uh, could, they can intercept uh, users' information, but they can't uh, can't decrypt this. Mm-hmm. And we feel we, we like users, we feel that our info, our personal information is quite safe. Uh, and all these companies refuse to move their servers uh, in, uh, in, in, in into Russia. That's uh, really good for us, and I I think that the main factor that Russian economy isn't so big as Chinese.
1: You've you've, your book Red Web came out in 2015, but you've now, like I mentioned, it's been reissued because there's been some interesting developments uh, in the last year or so. Um, Does it amaze you that there are still some out there in the United States that are arguing against Russian? Shenanigans, interference in the twenty sixteen elections. I mean, it,
3: it, yeah. well, you know, but the Kremlin has been playing this game with uh, deniable uh, responsibility and saying like it's not us, it's someone else uh, for right. years. And actually, we started many years ago, and we started first inside of the country. We got lots of, um, say, uh, communications intercept. I mean, we, we got lots of cases when you have. Um, uh, Russian opposition leaders or independent journalists, uh, uh, their communications intercepted and then leaked it to some pro-Kremlin websites. And the reaction of the Kremlin was always the same, like it has, had nothing to do with us. Right. It was about some, someone else, some patriotic-minded people. So they tried to play this game now and uh, saying it could be someone else, maybe Russian, but not part of the government.
1: Right, I mean, that seems to be always the easy one, like, oh, this, isn't, this is, hasn't been ordered by Putin himself, this is, yeah. these are some patriotic hackers who yeah, live somewhere in Moscow. wanted to please Moscow. him, and right. he,
3: of course he was not in the know. We do not believe in this theory because the uh, United States, and, well, it was always, and it still is, uh, is a very personal thing for Vladimir Putin. Uh, he, he try Actually, it's, it's a very important thing for him because, actually, you should remember that in, in the beginning, in two thousand, uh, he tried to please uh, George W. Bush. He tried to win his uh, his trust. Uh, he made some efforts actually to please him. He. Uh, decided to uh, to give up at least two military bases. One of them in Cuba, uh, uh, Lourdes uh, uh, alien facility, uh, which was enormously powerful. And uh, he also he gave up uh, his um, a military base, uh, military facility in Vietnam. Uh, he was the very first uh, foreign leader to call Bush uh, after 9/11. Mm-hmm. So he tried to do something. He wanted to be respected. And but when. He decided that he was betrayed by Bush. He became so angry. So it was always very personal, uh, which means, among other things, that you cannot do anything about U.S. election if you are not sanctioned from the very top. Right. It's a very special thing. It's just for Putin personally. It's very special.
1: And, And I think people in the United States don't... In the United States, the Panama Papers, the release of Panama Papers, were not a huge, huge story. So I think a lot of Americans didn't quite understand how it applied to them, and how it made a difference. (laughs) And that seems to be, I mean, you've written about this, but that seems to be at the forefront of Putin's motivations for messing with the United States. Essentially, he blames almost like us for a a personal attack on him and his inner circle of the top people at the Kremlin. Absolutely, of
2: course, that was the first time when Putin's Putin's personal money was exposed we even was not sure before the, uh, they even was not sure that that his personal money exists because how, how did you know right. and journalists uh, provide us with greatest greatest uh, greatest proofs that uh, this guy who is cellist uh, accommodated on uh, on his network of offshore accounts uh, something like two billion dollars. And it was clear, and uh, because he's a personal Putin's friend from his youth, it was clear that this is Putin's money. Mm-hmm. And it had never happened before. And Putin was furious, very angry at this, because everybody knows the rules, that nobody, nobody can touch Putin's family and Putin's money. <laughs> yeah,
3: that's, and, of course, uh, what, what makes the whole thing worse, he believed that this attack was directed by Hillary Clinton's people. So, for him, it was a kind of personal... Uh, fight between him and Clinton, and given the fact that he sincerely believed that she had intervened into his election in 2012, so probably he believed that well, it's fine to fight back.
1: How much do you think the Magnitsky Act plays a role in this, or does it at all? The the the, the sanctions that's placed on Putin's top people. These
3: sanctions have a big effect in Moscow, actually, and, and given the fact that Putin personally commented on on the sanctions and not once, I mean, it's it's a very big thing. It's Because it's personal, it's about personalities. Right. Uh, it's a big thing. Uh, when you go after personalities, it, it's much more sensitive. Uh, so I've, I think it was, yeah, was still of, huge. It was effective and huge.
1: Yeah, but I think people don't understand that, it, you know, Putin certainly is in charge, but there's a kind of a, a group of very, very rich people who are Putin's inner circle and his power comes from their approval in many respects. I mean, I think, you know, probably his biggest fear is losing that group who, if they turn against him, he's got big problems.
3: Or maybe he just believes that if uh, his personal friends are under attack, it means that he's uh, not powerful enough. To protect them. Yes. So so he needs to show his strength. Yeah,
1: that's right. So let me ask you about WikiLeaks, because many people say WikiLeaks, when it first appeared, Right was a, a positive institution for overall transparency and fairness and, I, and i'm you know I'm a historian at a, at a spy museum. The idea of what Chelsea Manning did, I'm very torn about it, right on one hand, it was information that we should have a conversation about. on the other hand, it was somewhat classified information snowden, I'm somewhat the same. so Assange and, and Wikileaks was I was torn about it at first because it seemed like there was something. Potentially positive about there, but now not so much. And I think that uh, it's it's a consensus, at least among those who have a little bit of information behind this, that in either the the kind of the spring of last year or or the summer of 2016, that WikiLeaks kind of went off. We say in the terminology, went off the reservation in the United States. What they, they became so closely tied to Russian intelligence that they lost kind of what they were founded on. Of course.
2: WikiLeaks started as an independent organization mm. and they, uh, I don't know, made a lot of good. But then they transformed uh, to some kind of Putin's supporters, Putin's proxies, uh, which is very sad for us.
3: We, To be honest, we we also believed in the beginning when we, we started back in 2010 probably that we were trying to do something good and actually they Actually, they've worked with some of our friends, I mean, in Russia, uh, when uh, they got this uh, big trough of documents from the U.S. State Department, uh, they actually, they had some some journalists in Russia working with them, doing some investigation, and then some of these investigations were really good. The problem is that in 2016, uh, WikiLeaks, I would say, completely changed uh, their character because they actually they started attacking the same journalists they had been working before. Uh, because now these journalists were working on Panama Papers. And for, for, for us personally, it was uh, a very shocking moment, uh, especially because there was a strange change of events. So you have Panama Papers expose. Next day, or maybe the same day, Wikileaks attacking Panama Papers. And the very next day, Vladimir Putin had his press conference. Asked about Panama Papers. And he said, look, now we know it's all about Ameri- uh, well, American conspiracy the U.S. State Department, because we know that thanks to WikiLeaks. Right. And, of course, it was, um, it was a very sad development. Uh, next day, we were uh, in Perugia, in Italy, at some uh, journalism festival. And uh, just by chance, there was Sarah Harrison from WikiLeaks there. So I asked her about that. And she was so, I mean, aggressive. She didn't want to take responsibility for this. She said, look, you can't help me responsible for what Putin said, but I believe that there is something wrong with, say, integrity of journalists involved in Panama Papers investigation. So, of course, they sort of played this game, and they still, well, they still play this game.
1: Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I think they've lost a lot of their their fan Club here in the United States. I don't States. Yeah, <laughs> no. I mean, and, and the timing is. If anyone perhaps hates Hillary Clinton more than Vladimir Putin, it's Julian Assange. You know, they both seem to blame her for everything. Um, and, and that, to me, you know, as I'm not a journalist, but I certainly know a lot of them, and I appreciate what you guys do. Um, it, it's sad to see a potentially independent, non-governmental—I mean, journalists who. The ideals were there, right? And again, the Manning stuff—I half agreed, half disagreed with it. But the idea of going after governments and going after corruption and, and and getting stories that no one would be willing to do otherwise seemed to be a lofty goal. Yeah. And it was an organization that had the opportunity to do that, and kind of just fell completely by the wayside. This, you know, being the, probably the worst thing you can do is getting in bed with with someone like Putin and the oligarchs. There, it's just. Uh, it's sad to me. I, I yeah, we,
3: we, we share your frustration because, well, for us the idea of transparency. Well, it's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Well, we journalists we want uh, the security services be transparent, not about their operations, but about many things they do. Right. And well, in Russia it's impossible even to establish well to establish who work for them sometimes. And I mean not operatives, but people in in power. And uh, it's it's all very secret in Russia. And so of course any kind of ideas which might contribute to the idea of transparency we presumed it should be good but and at least it looks like now uh, wikileaks try to regain some of at least some of the reputation they had they published something about russian surveillance efforts and they actually they contacted us but to be honest it doesn't look very sincere and it looks like a just an effort to try to distance themselves, right? But not as from the Kremlin. Uh, from the Kremlin, yeah. but not as a genuine effort to uh, to well, to, uh, to make something
1: transparent. Do you see anything that's been done since the elections to try to punish or dissuade the Russians from continuing these kinds of operations being effective? Uh, is there anything that's been done that you think will will hit Putin in a place that uh, that hurts? Uh, whether it's sanctions, although getting sanctions is not as easy to do. I would say that th- this do,
3: uh, indictment, uh, uh, F- FBI indictment of Russian hackers involved in, uh, in an attack on Yahoo in 2014, that was a very big development. the very first time in uh, the history of a U.S.-Russia relationship you got FBI, oh, excuse me, FSB officers on FBI wanted most wanted mm-hmm. list. It's, it's a very big thing.
2: Because transparency is always a very effective way.
3: You have some names. Right. Uh, finally, we've been, uh, say, speculating about the uh, relationship between criminal hackers and FSB for years. Now we got some proof, we got some information. That, uh, for many journalists, it's, it became a starting point for their investigations. So it's, it's added some uh, some information and, and helped a lot. So, no, I think, yes, that m- probably is the most interesting thing. Are
1: you optimistic about the future of journalism in Russia are you optimistic about being able to tell the truth to power do you think it's heading in a good direction or or, or a,
3: it's, I, a, it's completely different question <laughs> right, oh, sorry so um, it, uh,
1: uh, let me ask the question separately then I mean uh, what direction you, are you going down before you go back up or do you see a potential happy ending to all this or is it a constant fight you know what is the end game I mean is it, is it just to? I'm not trying to call you out. I'm saying, when you retire 45 years from now, and you look <laughs> back at your life, and you say, "I want to retire happy." What does that look like in Russia when it comes to journalism? Is that is there? What does success look like uh, for you? There
2: should be more independent media in Russia, yeah. and we had a lot, but we lost most of them. And but. There are some optimistic things that is happening right now because a lot of investigation into governments and the Kremlin's corruption is conduct, uh, are conducted by, uh, by the activists. And uh, they did good, really professional investigations and they posted results uh, on YouTube. And that's a great process in terms of transparency and in terms of, uh, of uh, to make... The authority uh, more visible and to know uh, and to get information about what they do in reality. Mm
3: -hmm. And I think that the uh, the the lowest point, we already, I think it was about 2005, maybe 2009. Uh, Back then, we, I mean, journalists, we completely lost trust of our audience. It was, uh, to be honest, it was a terrible time to be in Moscow and uh, the middle class intelligentsia they completely lost interest and trust in in journalism uh they they traded off a political freedoms for say private freedoms to make some money to go abroad uh to get some mortgages and this this kind of thing and but it looks like this period ended and now it's it's we are we are living in, in a completely new reality we are now once again, uh, the Russian people became interested in politics. Maybe there are some crazy uh, things, especially for people watching Russian TV. It's it sounds really crazy, with lots of accusations, lots of screaming, and some crazy stuff. But people got interested, mm-hmm. and it's a kind of uh, it's a first step. Uh, Once you got interested, uh, then the next step is just to find a proper way how to tell your story, how to convince people that you are integral, that you're independent, that your story is worth attention. So we believe that actually we are quite optimistic. Yeah, because of the Internet.
2: (laughs) Mostly, yeah. Mostly. In the
1: United States, you know, people say it's much... Not always able to challenge power at the top, right? To go right after the White House, but it's local elections, local governments. It's starting at the regional level. Um, do you start, and it's generational too, right? So younger generations at the local level are running for, you know, we joke around in the country, voting for Dog Catcher, but they're running for school board, they're running for local assemblies, they're running for state governments. Do you see that beginning where there is a grassroots movement in Russia at the province level, at the local level, working its way up to higher levels within the generations?
3: It's a bit more complicated because the Russian government, especially uh, in regions, they know how to co-opt these kind of right. uh, movements. But we actually, we noticed a very interesting thing. Uh, sometimes it's really bad for the government to, uh, to fire journalists. Because many of these journalists end up in these grassroots movements. Mm-hmm. And we try to trace what actually happened to some of these grassroots movements after the protests. Some of them stayed where they are. Well, helping pe- local people, I mean, fixing um, roads and, and streets, uh, this kind of thing. But some of them evolved into something much more political. And in many of these organizations, we found journalists these guys were already political mm-hmm. uh, they inter- well actually they, they, they infiltrated themselves into these organizations and then they but we cannot stay at this level we want to do something political so right. finally they, they turned these organizations into something political so it's a good thing yeah, and the last
2: local elections in Moscow was very successful in terms of uh, independent policy from the mm. Kremlin because uh, we had a local election, uh, we had an election, uh, uh, an, uh, an elections to uh, to local uh, to local assemblies, and a lot of independent people uh, got their places in these assemblies, a lot of uh, of independent candidates, right. including some some independent journalists. Mm.
1: Well, let me wrap this conversation up. We could talk for a long time, but I know you, you're here in, in DC doing about 90 things. So let me let me wrap this up. The question about the cooperation between journalists of different countries, and specifically the United States, right? We, you know, how much do you work with journalists here in the United States? Is there a cooperation across international lines about trying to uh, find innovative ways to make Russia op- more open to make uh, your jobs easier? Uh, I mean, it, it, do you have allies here in the United States yes. that are doing what they can to kind of help. Actually,
3: actually, we, uh, our books are published here only because of journalists uh, and because some journalists from actually, uh, some journalists from the Washington Post helped us a lot. And you have a lot of friends here. And sometimes it's about, sometimes the problem is that you just need to have someone to ask whether you are still uh, doing something according to journalistic standards. Right. And uh, sometimes you cannot find this kind of thing uh, and support in your country, uh, and it's great that you have now the internet and you have all these technologies, and and you can ask people, uh, which uh, the people you respect. Uh, and but also it's uh, it's about uh, some joint investigations uh, we did, uh, and uh, sometimes it's it's really great. I mean. Fortunately, we are not living in the Soviet Union. I mean, the Soviet Union was a kind of fortress, right. and everything about Soviet, the Soviet Union was unique. Now we we live in a global Russia, uh, and Putin my pretense so otherwise, but it's a global Russian. It means that Russia, which means that we have lots of Russians here, we have lots of interest, we have lots of businesses, uh, a lot of exchange of information, which means that actually you might do something from here, something from there. And uh, you, combine your, you, you can combine your forces and uh, efforts and uh, finally you can produce something really, really interesting.
2: And work of OCCRP organization in uh, I aiming mean its investigation into the uh, corruption of uh, elite of many countries, starting mm-hmm. with Russia and, uh, I don't know, ending with the United a Kingdom. Example, yes. the very positive example of, of, of cooperation, mm-hmm. of journalist cooperation across, across the world.
1: Well, the two books you might be most interested in are The New Nobility, The Restoration of Russia's Security State and the Enduring Legacy of the KGB. I believe that was a 2010-ish? Yes. Yes, all right, I got it. Uh, And The Red Web, The Kremlin's Wars on the Internet, which originally was 2015, but has now been re-released With new information on the U.S. elections of 2016, you may need to make a a third edition in about a year since every single day something new happens around here. Uh, Andre, Irina, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us here. Thank you very much.
1: The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.